seven to seventy-five. So Matthew twenty-six fifty-seven to seventy-five. Uh, we're continuing on in our uh, series in the Book of Matthew. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them, all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Um, There are times when I'm preparing for the sermon during the week and something will happen in my life that is just echoed in the text it's kind of like a teaching moment from God so this past week I was in the kitchen doing some dishes and um, I looked over to the little rack where we hang our uh, tea towel and you know you did you, you do the dishes your hands are wet you, w- you, w- you want to go dry your hands and I noticed it was missing and straight away like a muscle memory, I gave my wife a look. Just and uh, no words were spoken in that. It was just a look. Uh, it was a strong gaze, but it was really um, an accusation in that look. It was unspoken, but it said, it was you, wasn't it? <laughs> you forgot to replace the tea towel. And then she pointed to the bench beside me, and there it was. And it was like a return accusation. Again, (laughs) unspoken, you didn't check, did you? Um, I don't think there is one single week or even a single day that any of us go through life without facing some kind of accusation 
right, from the world around us, from the people around us, sometimes accusations even from ourselves. At times, it's a spoken accusation, and other times, it's unspoken. We live in a world where we face the weight of accusations day in, day out, whether they're valid or invalid, whether they're fair or unfair. And the question is, how do we live in light of those accusations? How do we, how do we go through life in a wise way? How do we respond in a way that brings us out from that crushing weight of accusation? In our text today, we see accusation. That's really the thing that stands out in our text. And we see two different people respond to accusations leveled uh, against them. The first is the religious leaders accusing Jesus of blasphemy, like we just read. And the second is a servant girl accusing Peter of being associated with Jesus. And I want us to look at these responses because in them we're going to learn something about ourselves and a wise, a better way to live in light of accusations. So, so this passage, um, you know, it's the, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, it's not just a narrative. This passage is for you. This passage is for your actual life. And there's wisdom here. There's healing here for you. you know, especially if you feel burdened and tired maybe even crushed by the many accusations that are pelted at you. And sometimes you feel a bit like a dartboard as you just go through the day, whether it's from others or the world or even yourself. So I want to look at these two responses to accusation today, uh, Jesus' response, and we're going to see that it's a true confession. And secondly, Peter's response, we're going to see that it's a false denial. But before that, I want to look at some of the sources of accusation that we just have been talking about, you know, where does accusation actually come from? And I have three sources in mind. Other people, yep, obviously. Uh, Satan and you. So firstly, other people. And of course, that is the source of accusation that we see in this text, right? The high priests and the religious leaders, they accuse Jesus. The servant girl accuses Peter. It's very self-explanatory. When someone else comes up to you and accuses you of something, but it's not always going to be so apparent or direct. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a position at work where a coworker might comment on your work performance and say, are you, are you sure you're going to be able to finish that? Meet your target. You seem to be struggling. You know, maybe you're not cut out for this. Or maybe from family, a parent who makes an insinuating comment about you and your life. You know, why are you so busy all the time? You know, you never pick up your phone. A spouse, maybe. You know, that hurts when that happens. You know, spouse saying to another spouse, are you, are you really wearing that tonight? Or when a spouse says some version of, why do you always do that? Have you ever heard that before? Why do you always do that? There's a underlying subtext of accusation there. You know, you, you're like this. Why do you always do that? And sometimes to go through a week in this world, it, like I said, it, it feels like you're being pelted with darts. You're, you're, you're a walking human dartboard. Accusations thrown at you. 
So firstly, they come from other people, but secondly, they come from Satan. And we don't talk about Satan much uh, because we don't want to over-spiritualize everything. But Satan is all over the Bible and he is the master accuser. That's one of his primary names in scripture. He's called the accuser. In fact, um, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, uh, even on that day, uh, on the day of Christ's return, it talks about Satan in, th- in this way. Revelation 12:10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So all the way up until that day, this is what Satan does. He accuses us. That's what he loves to do. He loves to accuse you. He wants you to walk through the day feeling the weight of the sins that you've committed, to feel burdened and guilty and crushed, even though that they don't count against you because you are in Christ. But Satan still wants you to feel it. So the accusations come. So from others, from Satan, and finally from yourself. Others might accuse you, Satan might accuse you, but so do you. You accuse yourself. The Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, Paul is speaking about the human conscience, and he says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When you stuff up, when you fail at something, maybe you spoke too quickly, or you raised your voice, or you procrastinated, you didn't finish something, what are the things that you mutter under your breath about yourself? Maybe when you wake up in the morning, you, you, you go to the mirror and just something comes out. You know, you're, you're off. You're a joke. You're so fake. You, you don't belong. <laughs> you're not what you should be. You know, our hearts are fountains of such thoughts. And some of us spend a large part of our lives controlled by an attempt to get out from under that. These are the sources of accusation, others, Satan, and you. Now let's look at the two responses. First of all, Jesus' response is true confession. So what's the situation here? The, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they're, see, they, they're seeking a false testimony against Jesus. They're bringing out these false bogus witnesses because they want to kill him. They want to murder him. And they've already decided that he uh, was guilty. This is what is colloquially described as a kangaroo court. It's a very Aussie term. Um, it's talking about a, a justice system that is a sham, right? The, the result has already been decided. They're just going through the motions. That's what we see here, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And in verse 63, it says, Jesus remained silent. He's just silent. He doesn't say anything. And so the high priest asked him again, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, point blank. And Jesus says, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you'll see it and you'll know it to be true. 
Right, in verse 64, he says, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when they hear that, they say, that's a wrap. We got what we needed here. That's it. Whenever I go to a cafe um, or any kind of counter to order food, I don't know if you do this, sometimes uh, there are people who are kind of hovering in, f- in, in front of that counter. And I'm not sure if they're standing in line or not. So I'll stand back for about 10 seconds and I'll wait to see what happens. I'll wait to see if they move forward or if they move back. And if they haven't moved, I'll ask them, excuse me, are, are you waiting in line? Um, and often they'll say, oh no, like you, you go ahead. Um, and I do that because instinctively I fear being falsely accused by someone that I cut in line. But imagine this, uh, picture this, you're waiting at that cafe, you're hanging back, someone's hovering in front of the counter and they turn around all of a sudden and they say, I was here first, so don't even think about it. You'd feel offended. (laughs) You'd feel even outraged. Who are you to talk to me in that way? You, You have no idea who I am. Jesus is the Son of God and he's shown that the last 26 chapters through his words through his life through his power and now he's accused of not being the son of god he's accused of being a blasphemer someone who is making themselves equal with god a selfish deluded pretender and i'm sure he was feeling something he's fully god and he's fully man i'm sure he was feeling emotions as he stood there the son of god in the sham trial, and they're calling for his death. And on his way out, they spit on him. They cover up his face so that he can't see. They mock him with jeers. They push him into the soldiers, into their fists. And I'm sure he was feeling the weight of that accusation, the injustice of it. Who are you to talk to me in that way? You don't know who I am. I am the Son of God. Yet he's silent in his retaliation, the only thing that he says is a true confession. He says, I am the Christ. And you'll see it. But you know, it's hard for us to relate to that example of responding to accusation. Like, especially when we're accused unfairly, I don't think many of us can easily follow in the footsteps of Christ and and just stay silent. Um, I'm just thinking about the last argument that I had with my wife. It's exactly this. I wasn't able to stay silent. I was offended. It's hard, to, it's hard for us to relate to Jesus' example of responding to accusation. So let's look at the other example, Peter's response to accusation. And this is what we call a false denial. And we can make the mistake of reading about Peter here and his denials. And you kind of just put some distance between yourself and him. And you're like, oh, that Peter is, he's a fool. Like, he, I can't believe he acted like that. This guy walked and talked and lived with Jesus for such a long time. He was a disciple. How could he, how could he do this in a, a moment of accusation? But it's actually much easier for us to relate to Peter than it is to, to Jesus. Um, I want you to see the contrast here between Jesus and Peter's responses. Uh, Jesus is accused by the high priest. He's accused by the head honcho 
of religious leaders, Peter is accused by a lowly servant girl. Jesus is accused of a big sin, blasphemy. Peter is accused of association with Jesus. Jesus is in the spotlight, right? All eyes on him in a court. Peter is kind of lurking around in the dark. Jesus is calmly silent and he gives a true confession. Peter is freaking out and he's immediately defensive. He immediately gives a false denial. He gives three of them. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And we have much in common with Peter because we're quick to defend ourselves from accusation. That's the reality. You know, when you get an email from a colleague at work and it's a bit short, it's a bit, ab- it's a bit abrupt, a bit curt, and what do you do? You respond with an equally abrupt and curt email. You forget someone's name, even though you met them the week before, and it's embarrassing, so the next time you see them, you, you avoid them. You don't want to be seen as the guy who doesn't remember people. Your friend maybe is ignoring a text all of a sudden for some reason, and you wonder what's going on. It's on your mind. Do they think a certain way about me? Did I do something wrong? And so you decide to ignore them in return. These are everyday little accusations that we respond to in this way. But what about when it's deeper than that? What about when your spouse levels an accusation at you that you have ignored them? That you have misunderstood them? That they don't feel seen by you? How often do we react immediately with defensiveness? And what do you mean? Haven't you seen me try in these ways? How can you say that about me? What about when your parents call to say that you should make some more time for them and immediately you lash out in anger? Look, I'm busy. When you finally have some quiet time to yourself, but those accusations that come from your own mind and your heart are so loud and it causes you to bitterly lash out with those self-deprecating self-hating words about yourself about your own worth you know i and i i suck i can't i'm so bad it's what we see in the final verse here in peter as the rooster crows and he goes out And it says, he wept bitterly. And did you know that this is the last time we'll ever hear Peter's name in Matthew's gospel? It's It's a bit sad. It ends on a note of utter failure to accusation, defensiveness, and he's just gone out and he's wept and that's it. And Matthew leaves us with that. That's it. He doesn't mention Peter again. And what's even worse is throughout the Gospels, Jesus has clearly said, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown them before my Father in heaven. So perhaps this was on Peter's mind in light of his denials. Peter's done it three times. He's disowned Jesus with oaths, with curses. Where does that now leave him? Where does that now leave us? Because many of us cave for a lot less than Peter did in the face of accusation. Um, you know, we're really good at fixating on Peter's failure, his treachery uh, in the face of accusation. 
And I think that Matthew does not mention Peter anymore because he wants us to take our eyes off Peter for a sec and to look at Jesus. Now, there are two responses here. If you just look at Peter's, it's going to be depressing and discouraging. Don't just look at Peter, look at Jesus. His true confession is that he is the Son of God and his power, his identity will be shown. That true confession leads to his death on a Roman cross. But that true confession also leads to three days later, a resurrection from death. And everyone, including Peter, including the religious leaders, can now see that his identity and his power is that of the Son of God. You know, we can so often be faithless, but he is always faithful. That's what Matthew wants us to see here. We can often be faithless, so faithless. But Jesus is always faithful. And we don't see it here in this gospel account, but in the gospel of John, we see Peter broken, caved under the weight of his denials, bitterly weeping, and then he goes back to his old life as a fisherman. And in that final chapter of that gospel, John 21, we see that Jesus seeks out his disciples. He seeks out Peter and he forgives him. He restores him. He changes him. Later, he's brought before the same Jewish court. I'm talking about Peter. He's brought before the same Jewish court that Jesus once stood in and gave that true confession. And this time he's threatened with prison and death. And this time there are no denials in the face of accusations. There is only a true confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And he ends up dying for it. We all live under the weight of accusations, don't we? From others, from Satan, and from ourselves. And isn't it, isn't it just exhausting to live like that? Don't just look at Peter. Don't just look at yourself. Look at Jesus. Because when you've been justly accused by others, and there are times that you will, or by Satan, or, or your own self, when you feel the darkness and the weight of your own sins, and it's heavy and it's crushing, you can look at Jesus, just like Peter did, and you can see that he went to the cross to receive the full brunt and the weight of the accusations and the punishment, the justice that are being leveled at you. And you can be healed by his forgiveness, and, and, and you need that. Now, I dare say that for some of you, that's what you need the most. You don't need just more rest and a better life. You need to know, like Peter, the healing power of God's forgiveness in Christ. This power that lifts the crushing weight and burden of accusations that come from others, that come from Satan, that come from yourself, off of you. You can be healed by his forgiveness. You need it. And when you've been unjustly accused, because there are times when you will be unjustly accused, Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. And he's able to sympathize with you because he knows exactly what that feels like. And that's good. 
that God Himself understands what you're going through, that He cares, that He comes to you like He did to Peter to strengthen you, to restore you, to change you. Just like Peter changed as he stood before these officials in this Jewish court. The example of this text uh, is gently confronting us today with a form of stop kidding yourself. You can't live under the weight of accusations. You can't keep brushing them under the rug. You can deny them all you want to, but they are false denials and they're crushing. You need, you need the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus who covers all of your sins who takes upon the accusations being leveled at you. You need to admit that you need Jesus and you need to turn to him. It's not enough to weep bitterly alone and turn away like Peter did. The resurrected Jesus calls us to turn to him and be healed. The amazing thing in John 21, when Jesus comes to Peter, is he invites him first to have breakfast. He doesn't lay out his three denials before him. He just invites him to come to him and eat with him, to have fellowship with him. And then he gives him three corresponding opportunities, uh, corresponding to the three denials, to repent, to trust in him, to be restored. Jesus has taken away our sins So you must look at him. It's not enough to weep and turn away. Weep if you must, but turn to him. Look at him. Look at him in this book. Look at him in prayer. Look at him in worship. Stop looking at the burdensome and crushing weight of accusations in your life and trying to figure it out on your own. Look at him until you rejoice again, and and you really will. And what you'll find is that his acceptance of you will be louder than any accusation that comes from others, from Satan, and even from yourself. Let's pray.